Hello, you're listening to Resonance on 104.4 FM. It's Wednesday, it's one o'clock, it's time for the Indie Media Radio London show brought to you on Resonance FM 104.4, bringing protest stories direct from the streets, posted onto the indiemedia.org.uk newswire and to global indie media sites worldwide. We look forward to presenting your stories, so keep posting them to indiemedia.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the show. Last week, if you were tuning in last week, you may remember that we were talking a lot about the potential outlawing of the critical mass bike rides that usually take place on the last Friday of every month. Now, we have Jenny Jones on the line, who's an MP for the Green Party, who wrote out, wrote to the press about these potential letters banning the protest. We have Jenny online. Are you there, Jenny? Hi there, hi. Hello. Um, now, along with being the Mayor of London's Road Safety Ambassador, you're also an environmentalist and campaigner for better facilities for cyclists and pedestrians. Have you been on any of these critical cy- mass cycle rides? Oh, I have, yes. I mean, they're absolutely incredible. And if you've never been, I do really recommend going to the next one because I hope it's going to be absolutely enormous. We've actually... Um, uh, it, it's been going for 11 years, and I haven't been going all that time, but it's something I've really enjoyed in the past. Um, and you're also a member of the Metropolitan Police Authority. Um, could you tell our listeners what that is and what is your role within it? Well, it was quite an experience for a Green. I don't know if you can imagine that. I'd only be, before I joined the police authority five years ago, I'd only ever been pushed around by the police. And so going on to the body that actually um, has oversight of them, we actually watch what they're doing and we make comments on what they're doing. We also set their budget and that sort of thing. It's not really a controlling organisation, but we do try to keep track of what they're doing and comment when we think they're doing it wrong. And you've written to Ian Blair, the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, about their stated policy review of policing the critical mass rides. What did you say? Well, I basically said how stupid it was that this was because they were they were trying to use a piece of new anti-terrorist legislation they've just sort of cooked up and pushed through, which was mainly to deal with Brian Hoare, who's the, the, the guy who's been doing such fantastic demonstration in Westminster for so many in Westminster Square for so many years, and um, they're trying to now use that new piece of legislation on the bike ride, and it's totally inappropriate and extremely heavy-handed. Do, do you know why they've wanted to cut? down on the bike rides? I think they see it as quite anarchic and it's, um, it also takes up some police time because they do actually send officers along to help us through junctions to stop the traffic and things like that. And most of the time in the past they've been fairly cooperative, not supportive clearly, but, but at least they've, they've tried to help facilitate it. And so they're trying to clamp down now I think is, is you know, a, a, a absolutely ludicrous. Um, what do you think the police are up to? I mean, have you any ideas why the ride might be criminalised? I just think perhaps they're so nervous about um, anything that they can't control. And, uh, I mean, I haven't had an answer yet from Ian Blair, and um, I'm hoping at the next police authority, when we're actually able to question him, that I, I'm going to bring this up and ask him what the motivation for the police is. But I think... Um, they are so nervous at the moment, particularly because of um, the, the possibility of more su- suicide bombers, and they're just trying to control what they possibly can on the streets of London. 
But but what does a big bunch of cyclists riding through London have to do with suicide bombers? Well, that's my point as well. And, um, I mean, uh, you know, there have been times when um, councils have been told by the police that they mustn't put up bike racks near, um, you know, important buildings because there could be a bomb on a bike or something like that. Uh, ludicrous idea. And, um, I, 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 you know, that, that's what I've been saying to the police. Now, some... S- do, some people do see this as part of the wider clampdown on civil liberties and the right to protest. And we've just recently seen the shocking figures of 600 people being stopped under Section 44 of the Terrorist Act at the Labour Party conference. Mm. I, I mean, do you think there's hysteria about terrorism within the political institutions of this country? Well, I think what's actually happening is that we are losing our parts of our liberty and parts of our democratic right to express ourselves. And the real problem is we're being told this is so that we don't all, you know, that so that innocent people don't get killed by suicide bombers and this sort of thing. But I don't agree with that. And I think that the way that you actually prevent suicide bombers is to make sure that you do have lots of freedom and you do have a democracy so that every voice can be heard. And in fact, if, if we change our society because of a few suicide bombers, then those people have won and they've taken away some of our liberty. And so I think we have to be extremely vigilant at the moment We've got a government that is clearly trying to shut down protests of all sorts and they're using this, I would say, the anti-terrorism idea as, as an excuse. Yeah, because here in London we've seen the Terrorist Act used against peace protest and is now being used widely at protests occurring around the country. Have you been following the use of the Section 44 of the Terrorist Act in London? Well, I've been trying to, and I've been asking questions of the Commissioner about this and saying to, and, and trying to find out where it was enforced, because Section 44 was never meant to be something that just rolled on from month to month to month. It was always meant to be... Um, a, a, you know, uh, uh, something that they, they could go to the Home Sex Show about, ask for it for a month or three weeks, whatever, and, and it would happen. But the police, I think, have misused it extremely badly, and it's time that we actually looked at repealing that piece of legislation, I think. Because it is dangerous. If the police misuse terrorism, um, a terrorist, anti-terrorism legislation that's designed to protect people and use it wrongly, then it becomes irrelevant as legislation to protect people. Absolutely, yes, and it's, it's just actually clamping down a democracy. Yeah. Coming back to the critical mass cycle rides, um, I know everyone's going to be watching what's going to happen at the next one at the end of October, and I think people are planning to take video cameras. Will you be there? Oh, definitely, definitely. I'm going to go on quite a few now just to make sure um, that um, if, if there's any arrests that, that I'm there either watching or perhaps even being arrested myself. The fact is, if you've never been on a mass cycle ride like this, you've just got to go to experience it, even if you're not very good on a bike because the fact is it's the safest way you can move around London on a bike you you know with hundreds of other people on bikes you just go along it's actually quite slow and you can see everything very clearly it stops all the traffic it's a great time you know it's fun and it's really got to carry on we cannot let the police stop us thank you very much Jenny good luck thank you Happy. If you weren't already, I could do a lot. 
It's Wednesday the 12th of October and today is the UN International Day for Disaster Reduction. With the world's focus currently on the devastating earthquake in Pakistan and the surrounding areas which claimed over 30,000 lives and left millions homeless, as well as recent memories from the New Orleans hurricane flood and the Asian Tazami at the start of the year, warnings issued today from the United Nations are certainly striking a chord. The new UN report issued today says that by 2010, as many as 50 million people will flee environmental deterioration caused by climate change. The Red Cross says environmental disasters already displace more people than war, with rising sea levels, expanding deserts and lack of drinking water, floods already causing millions of people to permanently migrate. But this is only set to increase and increase dramatically. The report from the, United, from the UN University for the Environment and Human Security says a new category of environmental refugees should be created to help deal with the problem of mass migration due to environmental crisis. Hyannis Bogardi, director of the Institute for Environment and Human Security at the United Nations University in Bonn, said there are well-founded fears that the number of people fleeing untenable environmental conditions may grow exponentially as the world experiences the effect of climate change. This new category of refugee needs to find a place in international agreements. We need to better anticipate support requirements similar to those of people fleeing other unviable situations. New Zealand has already agreed to accept 116,000 inhabitants of the low-lying Pacific island state Tuvalu if rising sea levels swamp the country. Elsewhere, as many as 100 million people live in areas that are below sea level or liable to storm surge. While the media is picking up on the figure of 50 million environmental refugees by the end of the decade, Bugardi, the author of the report, says that that number will rapidly increase to hundreds of millions. Speaking yesterday, he confirmed what many environmentalist campaigners have been saying for years, that he suspects the world's governments have simply not wished to tackle this growing problem. His research is 10 years old, and only now, he says, is it getting any serious attention. The report was featured on last night's Newsnight television programme on BBC Two. However, most of the programme seemed to be taken up with the debate about the term environmental refugee, with comment from the right-wing UK Migration Watch, focusing on the need to ensure people do not enter this country. However, even this speaker agreed that the world faces an unprecedented environmental crisis. As one climate change campaigner stated, if the world's governments aren't prepared to seriously tackle preventing climate change, they'd better start preparing to deal with its effects. Quite. Someday, whoa, it goes someday. Bigger 
says he got love for everyone. Bigger man love everything under the sun. A bigger man live by trigger of a gun, saying murderer, blood upon your shoulder. Walk away, don't give him a fight. Walk away, leave him lost in the night. Walk away, walk towards your holy light, and then you walk like a champion, talk like a champion. Rather can you be a ghost someday? Rather can you be a ghost someday? Rather can you be a ghost someday? Whoa, and go someday. Rather can you be a ghost someday? Rather can you be a ghost someday? Rather can you be a ghost someday? Whoa, and go someday. Michael Franti here from Spearhead, and you're listening to Indie Media's London Radio, connecting London with the rest of the planet. Stand firm, stay human, hold the vibes, and give the corporation some complications. Today sees the start of one of the key trials in Italy relating to the Genoa G8 protests of 2001. Beginning trial today are up to 47 police, carabinieri, prison officers and medical staff who are charged with various serious offences in relation to the abuse and torture of G8 protesters inside the Bolzanetto Detention Centre. Protesters held at the detention centre were beaten, gassed, threatened with rape and forced to sing fascist songs. Many of those abused inside Bolzanetto have been victims of the brutal nighttime police raid on Diaz School and Genoa Social Forum headquarters building. Out of the 93 people arrested during the raid, 62 required medical treatment for injuries, with 25 people hospitalised. Many of those carried out of the building after the raid were unconscious, with three people admitted to hospital in comas. The brutal nature of the raid was well documented by indie media and other alternative media networks, but the struggle to get the truth about, out about who was responsible has been a long one. While some of the police lies were soon revealed, such as the planting of petrol bombs inside the school buildings, official investigators have been obstructed at almost every turn by various police units and their political protectors. The Diaz trial starts on Friday with 28 police officers facing charges, many of them high-ranking officers. While there is little doubt about what happened in terms of the systematic beating of protesters, with even some police officers submitting statements describing their colleagues beating young people like wild beasts, finding out who is actually responsible for issuing the orders to attack um, the beat for the beatings has been proving much harder. 
Identifying the crimes of senior police officers has been difficult, with police supplying pictures of officers accused of brutality for identification. The only problem was that witnesses were presented with pictures that were up to 30 years old. How is someone supposed to identify an officer in his 40s with a picture of him when he was 19 is anyone's guess. The other problem is identifying the chain of command, who was in charge of which police unit, in which street or building, and at what time, who gave the orders, who ignored the orders, who operated on their own, and so on. It was in the Genoa Social Forum building opposite the Diaz School, where the Genoa Legal Team Office was located. Here police smashed the computers and phones of the volunteer legal teams and took away the hard drives of the computers, containing evidence of police brutality. It was here too that volunteer journalists from Indy Media and other groups were held immobilised while police beat people across the street. During the inquiries, senior police claimed that they only entered the Genoa Social Forum headquarters building by mistake, confusing it with the Diaz school opposite. Others claimed their units were only inside the building for a few minutes, instead of the 30 to 40 minutes during which cameras, computers and footage were seized, and journalists were forced to stand up against the walls with their hands above their heads while they could hear the screams from across the road. So as we said, the Diaz case starts on Friday and is expected to last for several months. The report from the prosecuting investigators is a damning expose on the night's violence and raises many questions about the legality of the whole operation. It infers a chain of command that goes right to the top of the Italian political system, but we'll have to wait and see how far blame can be proved during the trial. In a sickening twist to the story, it seems that both the Bolzanetto trial and the Diaz trial may never reach a conclusion, thanks to a new law now passing through Parliament in Italy. Nicknamed the Save Privetti Law, it seems purpose-made to enable one of Berlusconi's closest colleagues, Cesare Privetti, to escape prison on a judge-bribing charge by cutting in half the statute of limitations as it applies to a whole raft of criminal offences. Insiders say that the Diaz trial will be unaffected, but those accused of torture in the Bolzanetto detention centre could well escape prosecution. As one commentator put it, it's fascism, plain and simple. Check Indie Media for updates, and of course we'll be bringing you more interviews and updates over the coming months as the trials develop.
Sometimes my song, I'll be home, I'll be home. Every Wednesday at one o'clock, it's the Indie Media Radio London Newswire Show. Coming at you from the streets of London, Infinity and beyond on Resonance FM 104.4. The Circle Community Centre project at St George's in Tufnell Park was yesterday illegally evicted. 30 police and 10 bailiffs illegally entered the project yesterday morning. The project were asking for people to come and help to resist the eviction and we have some audio recorded at the time. Yeah, we're woken up very early this morning. The, um, basically bailiffs and a lot of police and they said they'd got a warrant to come and evict us. We informed them that we are in process of uh, still waiting for the High Court to come back to us in four to six weeks to let us know if we've got a High Court appeal. And they illegally proceeded to carry on and evict us. We told them, we had them on, our, on the phone to our solicitor and our legal team, basically saying this is an illegal eviction. However, they've just, you know, basically I think House and the Watt was getting very worried that we're launching a judicial review over the planning, that there's a lot of massive community and local support that wants this to stay as a theatre and a community centre and environment project and tried to rush getting us out, which is what they've done today, rushed in with 10 bailiffs and 30 police kind of thing. How is the legal position? Well, we went down the court from about 11, 11.30 this morning and basically asked for a stay of execution. Uh, so we put the forms in for that with all the other forms we were due to serve today anyway and it came back an hour later, no, we won't give you a stay of execution. We then asked for an oral hearing, which means we actually physically go before a judge rather than looking at the papers and they refused us an oral hearing. Um, so they said, if you don't like this decision within seven days, you can basically um, appeal it. So we left the court, them saying that basically within seven days or so we would probably get another oral hearing court date at which we can argue our case. I've just been told that the police are saying that might be tomorrow morning, which would be good because obviously they're evict you and you're trying to do it five or six, seven days later. Most of your stuff's been moved and it's very difficult. Um, but maybe if we get in tomorrow morning and the judge looks at it and goes, yeah, they've actually, there's something called civil procedure rules. You have to follow one, sets one to seven to evict people and they can't jump from five to seven which is what they've kind of done. So if we can get in there with our legal team and talk to the judge tomorrow and he might stay the execution and we can all go back in again for another one month to six months, who knows. But we might be out now and never go back in again. See what happens. How lawful was uh, the uh, action of the bailiffs to intrude the house? Not too bad. I've seen a lot worse in our time, you can say. Uh, basically... They just strolled into a, near the rooms where we were living kind of thing and started banging on the door saying, uh, you've got to go, come on, get up, you've got to go. I was thinking, waking up a bit, going, what's this? Hold on, hold on. And then I came out, there's a guy in blue jumpsuit and climbing harnesses and all the rest. There was a lot of them equipped with climbing harnesses kind of thing. I mean, it wasn't too bad, but they, they arrested Kenny, arrested him for whatever reasons, I'm not sure exactly at the moment but we've got to get some legal support to him. But basically, you know, you can't kill a spirit. We'll keep going in this or other buildings and uh, keep doing it. Did anyone get hurt or things trashed? They pushed people a bit out of the building kind of thing. No, it wasn't as bad as a lot of the eviction violence that we've seen from bailiffs and police and that sort of thing. Do you see a chance to um, 
get back the building? Yeah, we've got a small chance if we get a hearing tomorrow morning or some point within the next seven days for the judge to look at it and go, yes, they've actually illegally rushed through this eviction and therefore you've got to let them back into the building and let civil procedure rules take its course, which is waiting. We were basically, the next day was to wait to four to six weeks to see if they grant us an appeal at the High Court. That's where we should be. But they've used an old warrant that should have been cancelled from six months ago to come in and illegally evict. Because they're worried about, you know, the amount of support we've got. We were just about to go into launching a judicial review of the planning, saying that this is kind of an inclusive partnership panel and lots of different community groups help to run this building and decide what happens with it. And basically House on the Rock, the Nigerian Pentecostal Church have basically decided um, that they don't want community involvement and they want to evict us very quickly. We're used to this as squatters, but, you know, you carry on, you keep doing it, and uh, don't give up. A paper which is six months old should be expired? Uh, I'd have to check all the law on it. Somebody said it might be valid for a year. I don't know. But the point is, we rung the bailiffs to say, we are going to the High Court, this is going to an appeal, and basically this shouldn't be allowed to evict now. And they turned around and said, well, we're doing it, you better get down the court and get the paperwork to stop us doing it. Which we tried today, and the judges basically said, no, we're not going to... Um, we're not going to take your paper evidence, we're not going to have an oral hearing today, but they might give us one tomorrow within a week. Okay. Tomorrow is also the day when people can get in and take out their personal belongings? Yeah. Tomorrow, they so say between 10 and 1, people can uh, pick their uh, livelihoods up. What happens with all um, the things you got in there? There's the whole equipment for doing events. Well, basically, we've got a friend's spot we can go and stay at, which might be getting evicted soon, but that'll give us a short time. Uh, it might get longer. It might be evicted within a week or two, or it might get a few months. And then uh, we've also got ideas of other empty buildings that we can take, because we always be prepared. You always got our plan B, C and D, and at the moment we're working on C and D. <laughs> so the community, the soccer community, going to continue? Oh, the circle continues in uh, many forms, in many ways. There's an international rainbow gathering next year between July the 6th and August the 6th, full moon to full moon in this country, so there'll be big circles going on there. Uh, but, yeah, you know, the spirit of the circle carries on, so as long as anyone sits in a circle anywhere, uh, we all face each other, we're all equal, and we can all share things around that circle rather than being in pyramids of hierarchy and uh, all that malarkey. I had... The beautiful quote, they can destroy the building and take over the building, but they can't take away the community. Oh, isn't that beautiful? Lovely. <laughs> nice, yeah. Um, one old one from the, um, the protest is that you can't evict the spirit. You know, I mean, the spirit of what we've created here will go on. It was, it was here before this building. We've been campaigning on Agenda 21 for environmental community centres for the last 13 years through 15, 20 different buildings, and this is the latest in a long series of that and until they realise that we should be allowed to have environmental community action spaces, we'll carry on squatting and creating places where we can do take action, because obviously governments, councils and all the rest are just completely ignoring the environmental situation that we can see from recent global climate change things going on. is going very critical all over the planet, and we need to have environmental action spaces to do stuff. People do need, you know, community social spaces, environmental spaces to come and meet together, low-cost, cheap cafe, kids' spaces, things like that. Um, there's a beautiful little quote from this guy Carlos that I talked in circle about three or four weeks ago. He said, I come here to break the isolation. Spanish guy. And he said, I come here to break the isolation. And I just thought about it and I thought, well, you know, yeah, that's, that's what it is, basically. We all get isolated off into very smaller 
areas and boxing things and uh, we need spaces where we can come together. They've closed down so many community centres, hospitals, you know, youth projects, all that sort of thing, and then they complain about crime being high, but, you know, there's all going on for, you know, youth and community projects, and when we try and set them up, there should be more support from really, rather than evictions, but we know how the things are set up, and we've got to rearrange it, change it, and create the sort of um, other worlds are possible that we want to see every day and every now. Magistrates Court, Yate, Bristol, saw the opening day of the trial against five protesters who blockaded a Sainsbury's depot to stop the distribution of genetically modified fed milk back in February. The protesters are charged with aggravated trespass but claim that they were acting to protect the public and their children from the harmful effects of Sainsbury's milk, which is produced from cows fed on GM. Around 30 people came to court to support the defendants and spell out the message GM is in milk with their bodies as well as perform street theatre with a Damien Hurst-style see-through plastic cow banner. 
The day progressed well. The prosecution's attempt to lay heavy compensation claims unraveled under examination as it appeared that Sainsbury's figures had been plucked out of thin air. One prosecution witness describes a national public order tactical provider described the protesters at the time of the action as being quite pleasant. The trial continues today where protesters will lay out their defence argument. The judge has allowed for their expert witness scientist Dr Ricarda Steinbrecher to give evidence on the health risks of GM fed milk. She will hopefully appear in court on Thursday. Um, and now is a little question-and-answer thing where a London biker speaks about their critical mass. He says, here is a question-and-answer I did with a concerned mass rider in London, England, on their September the 5th ride when they were handed a letter from the Metropolitan Police about having to inform the city about the critical mass route. The local bikers have vowed to make the October ride the largest in UK history. And this is the question and answers. How many cities in the UK hold critical mass? Answer, not many. I can list them. Central London. Only this one is under threat so far. North London, separate ride in summer months. Manchester, Brighton, Edinburgh, Birmingham, Glasgow, Leeds, Nottingham and Reading. When did critical mass London first start and how long has it been going on for? A Critical Mass London started in April 1994, about the same time as Reclaim the Streets and the anti-road building demos. We get around 200 people in winter, 350 in spring and autumn, and around 500 to 800 people in the summer. It used to attract around 1,000 in the summertime, but we only get near that number on the birthday ride each year in April. Question. Is this the first major crackdown of the ride? Yes, normally the police turn up uninvited and ride with the mass on mountain bikes, resolving any problems with motorists always taking the cyclists' sides. Their orders, it seems, have been to get us through London as fast as possible. They were even apologising as they explained why they were handing out the letters. They told me, I'm just the messenger, this came from above, and I've been policing the mass for three years on a bike and look forward to it each month. Question, are the police acting alone and does the city take a similar stance or no stance at all? Answer, it seems Superintendent Gom, who wrote the letter, is the only person against critical mass, although a quick Google search reveals he is quite high up in the police force. The city GLA, Greater London Assembly, are actively provo promoting cycling as a form of transport. It would be unusual for them to comment on something like this. We hope the mayor will help us, though. Question, on what grounds do the police all of a sudden need to be stopping critical mass? They say it is due to the new designated area around Parliament which does not allow demonstrations of any size or type into a one-mile radius. This law was designed to remove long-standing protests against British involvement in Iraq. However, the protester Brian Hall won his case in the High Court to remain at the protest camp overlooking Parliament. We may have to seek protection under the same clause that the demo predates a new law, although because we are not a demo, we should be exempt anyway, and most people do not want critical mass labelled as a demonstration. What is the reaction in local press, if any? There has been no reaction from the London Evening Standard, that's the biggest selling London newspaper, but they're very right-wing and have never reported on critical mass. The Guardian newspaper ran a very short article and they got a lot of facts wrong, such as the number of cyclists on the mass. 
The local BBC TV have suggested they are likely to have a report live from the start point of the Mass and will record interviews with cyclists to go out on the night of the next Mass. Also, the Big Issue magazine sold by London's homeless is carrying a story on the Mass and the police's letters impact on the community in their next issue. Any reaction from the public on the recent threats? It is hard to gauge reaction as critical mass tends to be overlooked by most people not involved. People often say, oh, you do that bike thing. I saw that once. We don't have much of a profile outside of activist and cycling communities. What is the take from the local activist community? Huge. Everyone I've spoken with since the letters have been telling me they will be on the mass and are bringing everyone People are horrified that the mass has been threatened. I've spoken to people who have not taken part in five or six years and they are disgusted by the letter and will be on the ride. Plenty of activist groups from samba bands to film groups are planning to join the ride or organise events around the next ride. So we should see a return of critical mass bike samba. Question. Is there two movements in London as far as bike activists? Those who promote bicycling advocacy and work with the city and those that believe in more direct action. Yes, that's it exactly. We have the London Cycling Campaign. They tend to refuse to acknowledge the existence of critical mass, although many of their riders take part in the mass. Most activist riders do their own thing, but recognise each other from the mass. We don't have much bike culture outside of the London Cycling Campaign supervised rides, normally outside of London, the couriers and the mass. How is critical mass being tolerated by the public? People love the sight of us riding down a street. Motorists hate us, generally without exception. Taxi, black cab drivers, would like to see us dead. <laughs> Question. Does London critical mass suffer from the same identity crisis as New York protests versus just a fun bike ride? Yes, but masses tend to understand this difference of opinion exists and just accept it. We don't get many masses arguing and people want to keep critical mass a positive experience. Motorists in London seem to see all bikes as being in their way. Once a month we get to relax on the road and we keep it fun. Do the London police claim the ride has been taken over by anarchists? Not yet they haven't. It's early days. The police told us on the last ride they had not been given new orders. We will see what happens at the end of the month. I do not believe they will try using something like this. Have there been arrests at critical mass before? In my seven years on the mass, I've only heard about four arrests. One was a fight between a cab driver and a cyclist, and the others were for drinking on the street in Westminster, which is arrestable if you refuse to hand over the alcohol when asked by police. I have seen numerous cab drivers handcuffed over recent years for arguing with the police on the mass, but never arrested. They tend to be handcuffed if they become violent towards cyclists, and then when they have calmed down, they are released. Question. Any sympathetic local politicians who are expressing concern and promoting the value of the ride? Yes, Jenny Jones, the leader of the Greater London Assembly Green Party Group. She was deputy mayor until recently and serves on the Metropolitan Police Authority, a government watchdog on police activity in London. She has joined the mass a few times and in the past has written a letter to the police commissioner quoted below. We have also attracted the attention of a lawyer from the human rights group Liberty. I'm hoping to get the Mayor of London, Ken Livingstone, involved. He is spending a budget of millions of pounds this year promoting cycling as a form of transport. Who are the leaders of critical mass? Question. Just kidding. That one was obviously a joke. Answer. I'm just riding my bike in the same direction as all these people. I want all you skinheads to get up on your feet. 
put your braces together and your boots on your feet and give me some of that old moon stamping. Get ready. We got three million miles to reach on the moon. So let's start getting happy now. Ready? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, before we reach on the moon, fellas, we gotta make sure that everything is thick and strong. All right? You gotta make sure you shine your boots. <laughs> Brush your teeth. Because the man on the moon looking different from man on the earth. <laughs> That's what I say, boy. Now remember, I'm your boss, Skinner speaking. My name <laughs> is Caleb. All right. Right. And remember, I'm the boss. You can see, look on my foot or my feet, whatever you want to call it. You can see I've got the biggest boots. That's all right. Now, when I say sing, I want everybody to get in the groove and start singing because we're on the moon. Ready? One time. men and women affected by cruel asylum policies denied their basic human rights to family life who face being forcibly separated from their foreign national partners in the name of maintaining effective immigration controls linked together on this day of parliament reconvening and the adjournment debate asylum seekers and leave to remain in the UK. Um, right now, senior staff nurse Amanda Kadir from Liverpool does not know if she will ever see her husband Zardasht again. Originally from Kurdistan, where there is no facility to apply for a visa to return as Amanda's spouse, he travelled to Jordan to make the application and was told by the Home Office that he would have to travel to Iraq and wait there while the application is protest, processed. Sorry, Amanda explained, when my husband got to Jordan, he was detained for three hours by the authorities and his passport was taken away from him. They don't believe him when he told them why he had come and they threw him out of the airport. 
Campaign supporters um, join the growing list include Louise Ellman MP, Bob Waring MP, Jeremy Corbyn, George Galloway and the Unison branches and Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. So who are we? We are a rapidly growing national campaign of couples that face being forcibly separated from our partners in the name of immigration controls. We are over 35 couples with more contacting us every day. We are open to all couples, straight, same-sex, married, engaged, living together or dating. In all our cases, our partners are people who have acclaimed asylum in the UK and have failed. Follow Home Office instructions and get stranded in dangerous countries in perilous situations. Many of us have been told by the Home Office that we can either accompany our partners to the countries and settle there, even though the Foreign Office advises, advises against travel to these countries, such as Iraq, Afghanistan and Iran, or our partners should return to their countries and apply for a visa to return to the UK, even though there may be no facility in that country for issuing visas and our partners may be exposed again to the persecution they fled and would have to undertake take dangerous journeys. Some of our partners followed the Home Office instructions but were left stranded in dangerous situations with no access to even apply for a visa. Others were deported and refused a visa to return to the UK. There are children torn away from their parents. Parents have been forcibly separated from their British children and partners. British-born children have been deported to countries they've never set foot in, denied the right to marry. Since February 2005, both British citizens and their non-EU partners must obtain permission from the Home Secretary to marry, and it's rarely granted to people who have failed asylum claims. One law for some and another law for others amounts to no rule of law. Living under the threat of forcible, indefinite separation and danger, our partners are complying with the conditions set by the Home Office to sign periodically at immigration enforcement units and police stations. We live daily with the uncertainty of if and when our partners will be snatched by immigration officers detained and deported. Meanwhile, many of our partners are denied the right to work and pay tax. We are supporting them from our salaries but then penalised in our applications to be together because the Home Office says we can't show enough savings to prove we can support our partners, which in fact we are already doing now anyway. The Home Office has questioned none of our relationships. Article 8 of the Human Rights Act 1998 describes the right to a family life, yet the Home Office is denying countless couples this right. They show no care for our human rights here in the UK or in the dangerous countries they suggest we should follow our partners to. Please support us. This week's Big Issue article has an article called Trouble and Strife in which some of our cases are highlighted. Extracts below. Ashley's husband is from Burundi. It wasn't until I'd known him for about two months that I found out his brother had been killed by rebel soldiers in Burundi, she says. Adam hid but was later captured and tortured. The immigration officials have never asked to see his scars, but they say he is not a target. Now Ashley must decide whether she wants to risk letting her husband go back alone to a country he fled because he feared being tortured and killed or follow him to a place the Foreign Office advises against British citizens against entering. We don't know how long it will take him to get his entry visa, she says. It could be several months or even longer. The Home Office has also told Ashley it will use public money to pay for her to follow Adam back to Burundi. We would not want to split a family up, says a Home Office spokeswoman. 
However, the British Embassy in Burundi says it is not able to issue entry clearance visas from its office in Bunjumburu. Applicants must go to Kampala in Uganda, explains an embassy official. The Foreign and Commonwealth Office states Burundi is unsafe for British nationals, saying they should only visit with a UN mission, and even then safety cannot be guaranteed. The FCO has refused to provide this for Ashley, saying it is her choice if she wants to go to her country. There are many other couples like that, and for more information on some of the difficulties and campaigns about this issue, you can check out a couple of websites. There's www.justiceforhussein.com. Um, there's also www.allytostay.com. And for Ashley and her husband, you can either email barbara3 at ntlworld.co.uk to offer support or www.justiceforhussein.com. Okay, we wish all those couples luck in staying together. Please keep reading the UK Indie Media website and posting your stories, and we'll be covering some of those in the next week's show. Take care. Bye-bye. How much can she take? How much can she give? How much is too much and how much longer can she live? As we turn our backs and turn our eyes and pretend we don't see. If ignorance is bliss, then full of bliss are we. Welcome back to Eco Talk, and we are welcoming to our studios the author of a just published book, very important, powerful book uh, about dams. It's called Deep Water: The Epic Struggle Over Dams, Displaced People, and the Environment. And the author of this uh, great piece of work is Jacques Leslie. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, interesting that you're writing about dams. Uh, there's a book out about Hetch Hetchy right now, and you're taking a look at um, some individual stories that took place around the globe, uh, both you know, man versus nature, man versus man, and the folly of man trying to tame nature and it comes at a time when we're seeing what happened with the levees of course on the gulf coast where you know it's really kind of a faustian bargain you uh, on the one hand get the levees and you get development and prosperity but of course it's not nice to fool with mother nature too much and now we're seeing the consequences of that you have a story about three different people and you sort of track the good bad and ugly of dams through them well, the, the three of them were all commissioners on something called the World Commission on Dams, and they came from very different points of view. That when they were drawn for the commission, one was considered anti-dam, one in the middle, and one pro-dam. And I chose the most interesting of each commissioner out of, in, in that category, so that the anti-dam person is Maida Patkar, considered the world's foremost anti-dam activist, a woman in India who has uh, tried to drown herself in rising reservoir water and has been on hunger strikes of up to 26 days in opposing a huge dam in western India. Literally tried to drown herself? That's right. In fact, uh, the, the section of the book about her deals with my going to see her when she was making an attempt to, to do that. She'd already uh, tried once, and the water had reached uh, above her neck, and the police grabbed her at the last moment to prevent uh, having the Indian government having to deal with the embarrassment of her death. That's a heck so, of a price for making a statement. Was she so depressed from the struggle, or was she actually just willing to sacrifice her life to get attention? I, I think she really wanted to give her life and probably still does. Um, she had tried before and may try again. Her, her hunger strikes put her right on the edge of death. She wanted to embarrass the government so that it would reconsider its zeal for dams. 
Well, what did she see that, you know, that, that is the ultimate price of well, her life? She was willing to give her life for this struggle. Well, this dam displaced or is in the process of displacing two or 300,000 people, maybe more than that. Most of them are indigenous people who'd been in the same region along the river for hundreds of years. Uh, and uh, not only were their lives being shattered by being forced to move, uh, but their culture was being shattered along with it. Mm. And that's very often the case in dams around the world. There have been 40 to 80 million people who've been displaced by dams. Bill McKibben, by the way, has a great review of your book in this edition of On Earth, the uh, Natural Resources Defense Council, great publication, and they are our sponsor and environmental partner, so that ties in nicely. And one of the things he said is dams will end up being the relics of the 20th century along Stalinism and gasoline-powered cars, symbols of the allure of technology and its transience of the top-down, growth-at-all-costs era of development and international banks, of the delusion that humans are exempt from nature's dominion of greed and indifference to suffering. Those are my words. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, there is a quote in there, so yes. Uh, why will these be relics of uh, an era gone by? Well, we're already learning uh, all the damage that they cause. The United States, which used to be the leading dam building country in the world, now leads the world in taking them down. And uh, we're slowly uh, letting that lesson pass to the developed world where there's still a lot of enthusiasm, but uh, they can't last that long. All dams die. And at that point, they become very expensive waterfalls. Uh, and and uh, that's what's going to happen. I guess your book, among other things, really looks at the upstream and downstream impacts, human impact, human toll on man trying to, again, you know, control nature. And edit. was it innocent or, you know, is there some nefarious goal here in operation? Uh, we just didn't know enough, but now we do. But you say it's still taking place. Oh, um, I'd say it's, it's the sin of hubris. Uh, when Hoover was, was built, the Secretary of the Interior declaimed at the dedication, uh, man acclaims his conquest of nature. Well, man doesn't win those battles for very long. And ultimately, the ecological costs and human costs do catch up with us. Uh, when will the lesson about lamb, dams really penetrate? Is that starting to happen? Are you starting to see a shift? Oh, it is starting. And as I say, it started in the United States. That's why we now take more dams down than we build. But in the developing world, they're still being built. Uh, people want water and power, and we have to come up with alternate ways of providing those. You did a lot of traveling to put this book together, and you say it took about four years to put together. I believe it. It's a real, you know, comprehensive look, but written through an interesting narrative perspective. Well, thank you. I, I did go on about five trips to Africa, Australia, and India, uh, and uh, I uh, loved uh, all, all of those experiences, rich, very rich. Are you surprised at what's happening with the levees that we're seeing the fallout of, you know, man trying to uh, control where the water flows? Uh, right. It's the same story. It's the control of nature. Uh, the victories are all temporary. Uh, someone I was just reading about, an engineer, said that there are two kinds of levees, uh, those that uh, have already failed and those that will. And ultimately... Humanity will fail if we don't learn our lessons more quickly and, I think, more dramatically. That's right. The book is called Deep Water, The Epic Struggle Over Dams, Displaced People, and the Environment. The author is Jacques Leslie. I really encourage you to pick it up. It's a really good study on, oh, some of the mistakes we're making, what we can learn from them, and hopefully uh, people in other countries will pick it up as well. Will it be uh, published in other languages? Uh, well, I hope so. I hope so, too. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Betty.